Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker. On this special episode of the podcast, my colleague Emilia Javorski interviews Sean Ekins. Sean is a pharmacologist and an expert in computational toxicology. In this conversation, Sean and Emilia discuss the benefits and the potential risks of using artificial intelligence for drug discovery. Here is Sean and Amelia. Welcome to this special episode of the Future of Life podcast. I'm Amelia Javorski from the Future of Life Institute, and today I'm sitting down with pharmacologist Sean Eakins. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you, Amelia. It's a pleasure to be here. It's exciting to meet you, and this will be the sort of the first time we've gotten to meet and talk about this topic. But I think for listeners, why don't we start out with your journey before of working with AI and chemistry to make the world a better place? Uh, well, for me, it goes back over 25 years um, when I first came to America. Um, I started to use computational approaches for drug discovery, and uh, it's influenced my whole career since that moment, um, coming over here, working for different companies, um, developing technologies for other companies, and then most recently forming my own company, Collaborations Pharmaceuticals. Uh, we work in the area of rare and neglected diseases, and we use computational approaches, AI, machine learning, uh, to design, come up with new molecules. And we'd never done anything like this before, and I don't know that we'll ever do anything like this again. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what basically got us to this point. Um, you know, we're a small company based in North Carolina, and we're funded by NIH and uh, some DOD grants um, to develop our technologies and apply them but obviously not applying them in this space. So uh, this was really the first time that we went out on a limb and did something like this. Indeed, and we'll definitely dig into what the this is um, and, and how you got there and, and what has transpired since. Um, but in your work early on in using computation for drug discovery, a lot of what you did was looking at computational toxicology, which is not only identifying new molecules, but understanding and trying to use AI to predict how they would be safe or toxic to the body. That's right, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it was driven by my earliest interest in computational drug metabolism and toxicology, and, and really the three R's, you know, reduce, replace, and refine animal testing. And so the whole idea of, you know, how can we minimize the number of animals that are used in doing this kind of testing? And so obviously, if you can do a lot of the simulations in a computer, you've removed animals altogether. And so that's really, I think, what it boils down to. And, and that goes all the way back to my PhD, where we're using um, tissue slices, you know, using technologies, in that case, cells, um, and trying to get as many experiments out as possible. And now, obviously, we get to the point where we can do the experiments on the computer. And so there is this kind of direct line, I guess, going all the way back to my PhD back in the early 90s to this moment. You know, at, at that time, I was interested in the metabolism of molecules and, you know, what kinds of molecule metabolites are formed. Are they going to be toxic or are they going to be safe? And so now we have the capability with the massive data sets that have been generated to make those kinds of predictions with a good degree of certainty that they're actually going to correspond to experimental data. And so I think that's, uh, for me, it's that natural evolution. It's just taken, you know, 20 or 30 years to get there. So this point you bring up, bring up here about the role of computation to help 
replace animal testing is, is key. And there's another aspect of this where computation has thought to be very important for drug discovery. My background, I'm a physician and scientist by training. And one thing we see quite a bit is as drugs make it down the pipeline, they often fail in clinic. And the predictive value of animal models for the actual clinical response of many of these technologies is quite low. So can you speak a little bit about that, too, in terms of not only removing the animals out of the equation, but making sure better candidates get to the patients early on in testing? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, the thing that's really happened over the last decade or so is that we also have uh, data sets for human endpoints for uh, toxicology and metabolism. So uh, what we've seen over the last few decades is the generation of more in vitro data using human cells. And so instead of having the animal cells there or the animal whole animal to make those kinds of um, judgments, we can actually use human cells and we can take into account sort of that inter-individual variability in metabolism as well. So now we have those data sets that have been built and we can use those for machine learning. So we can cut out the animals altogether and just go straight to the human in many senses. And the hope is that those will be better predictors of the human response. Um, we still obviously rely a lot on um, animal models for things like LD50, lethal dose, because clearly we can't kill humans um, to develop these molecules. So we have to have uh, some measure of, well, will it actually kill a whole organism as opposed to a cell? Um, so yeah, we can take into account both the, the human models as well as the animal models. And in most cases, when we're looking at a, a bioactivity, we're obviously using a human cell system. Uh, or a human protein in isolation. Uh, we're not using the animals in that case. And the data sets that you talk about, that's been really key to enabling a lot of this computational work. And this general idea in the industry that preclinical should be pre-competitive. And the emphasis on open sort of sharing of these data sets and being able to democratize this kind of early computational work. And I know that's something that has been a big piece of your work as well. Yeah, actually, the whole pre-competitive piece goes back over a decade. Um, we definitely noticed that there wasn't a lot of sharing going on uh, in the industry, especially the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. And so I was a pretty early proponent of uh, how do we make these data sets accessible? And obviously, what we've seen is a great deal of funding um, from governments like the NIH and in Europe um, to develop databases like Kemble and PubChem in the US. Um, and I don't know, maybe the listeners are not aware of these databases, but they're huge repositories of this kind of biological data. Um, and there's a good amount of toxicology data out there as well. So it's now readily available. There's large quantities of it talking for thousands, if not tens of thousands of molecules in some cases. So what we have now is this culmination of freely accessible data and it's accessible to anyone. You don't even have to be a scientist to get it. You just have to know where to look. And so we've really gone through this transformation over a decade where the data sets were small, there wasn't very much out there to the point now where we have this abundance of information and it's accessible. Um, it's just not always in the format for machine learning. So you have to take it and clean it up. So we now have these large open data sets that are accessible to individuals and teams across the globe who would like to work on the development of new medications for patients without the need of animal testing and to develop drugs to get to patients faster and with a higher chance of being successful. This on face value would seem like unequivocally a great thing for science and humanity. But there are risks here. 
Tell us about the experience that you had in uncovering what are the risks of this type of setup? Well, um, we hadn't previously thought about the risks, if I'm honest. Um, it wasn't until I had an invitation to the SPEES Convergence Conference last year, um, and we were asked to think of ways that AI could be misused in drug discovery. That got us thinking, because obviously we, we really hadn't considered how the tools that we were developing could be misused. And so we came up with uh, a few examples very quickly. I mean, we really left it until the last minute before giving the presentation. And um, we came up with a, a short list of ideas. And one of them was, could we use the AI that we were using to design molecules along with our toxicology prediction models to design chemical weapons? And the one molecule that came to mind was VX. And so we set about to use this real thought experiment in the computer um, with our software to show that we could actually come up with an idea. So this was one of three examples we came up with, and we did this experiment very quickly. We generated the data. Um, my colleague Fabio Urbina generated the data, um, and we looked over it. Uh, very, you know, really quick experiment. It only took a few hours, literally overnight, to do it. And then when I saw the molecules that came out of it, uh, I realized that, uh, oh boy, it had actually designed chemical weapons, potential chemical weapons. And all of these molecules were predicted to be, you know, very toxic. You know, they were hitting the, the target we were aiming for. And we had a model for LD50 as well. And I think for me, the, the realization, this was, you know, actually something that was a, a success. You know, I didn't want it to be a success, but it showed that the technology, the generative approaches could design the molecules. And we actually did make VX in the computer. I mean, we verified that we could make that molecule. How did you feel, right? Because you said up until this moment, something that you thought of as a great thing, right? With no downsides, which is what most scientists think I feel, right? As a scientist myself and working on medical devices, we often don't think about risks or downsides because we're so motivated by the mission that's before us, which is to do these things to make society better and to help society, not to do something that could be detrimental, that risks often are not on our radar. What was that experience of the realization of what your program had created? Um, it was sickening, really. Um, there was obviously a good degree of shock, or what do we do now? Let's just stop. Um, and, and just close it down. I didn't really want to look at it. I didn't even look at the screen again, actually. Uh, once I'd seen the molecules and we'd confirmed that we'd actually made VX or the computer, the software had made VX, that was it. I didn't want to go any further. And we just um, produced an, a visualization and a couple of uh, slides, really, for the, for the conference. And, it, and that, was, um, that was it. We didn't look at the data again, the information in any way, shape, or form, actually until recently. I was done. I, I felt like we had gone too far. And so, you know, my request to Fabio was just stop, get me the slides and move on. And um, yeah, the rest, the rest of it uh, sort of took its own journey, really. And, and um, so we went ahead and I gave the presentation. And there was a, there was a lot of, um, I think, shock and awe in the audience in terms of what we were able to do. Obviously, most of my presentation was what we would do normally, right? How we would use the technologies in a positive light. And then there was just essentially one or two slides that showed 
the results of the sim this sort of thought experiment or simulation. And then I also gave kind of a, a cookbook of, well, what could we do to make this even worse? And the, uh, you know, the information and the knowledge of the availability of the software and the data sets, I think kind of hammered it home to people that this is actually, um, you know, very scary, very, very, very realistic. And there's actual consequences of this. So there was a great deal of follow-up after that. Um, and then that led to putting together a thought piece with uh, Philippa and Cedric, um, who are actually experts in the whole dual use area. And um, yeah, we obviously wrote the sort of uh, commentary, um, submitted that to a couple of journals, and then ultimately, you know, nearly five or so months later, it actually was published. And then, you know, this is the result of that, right? This, this and the subsequent uh, publicity that's come out of it has been quite overwhelming. And walk me through that decision, moving from the initial presentation of this horrific result that you, you had in using your technology to the decision to write the nature piece and disclose that publicly. Because something we think a lot about is the question of balancing information hazards, right? Putting things out into the public domain that could be very have very detrimental impacts, but also weighing that with the importance of educating the public about risks that have previously been underappreciated. What was that process like for you, even having an aversion to even looking at the data yourself? Right. Well, I, I do write a lot. I mean, I've, I've published hundreds of articles. Um, many of those, in fact, most of them are all on AI or computational approaches for drug discovery. So the writing piece was relatively easy, but it was very dry. You know, it was very much, this is what we were set out to do and this is what we achieved. Um, and then I just submitted that to the organizers of the meeting because obviously I, I wanted some feedback from, you know, Fabio and myself could write, you know, about the actual experiments and the results. Um, but actually the context of it, that, that was way outside of our realm. I mean, obviously we hadn't encountered dual use before. Um, and so I, I wanted to get some expert feedback. And then um, the organizers put us in touch with Cedric, who is part of the SPEES organization. And also Philippa. Philippa was asking lots of questions um, at the time I was giving the presentation. And, um, you know, they, they're experts in this area. So it was, it was great to get their feedback. And um, they shaped the manuscript and took it into, you know, a credible, um, I would say a credible version, whereas before it was, it probably wouldn't be all that exciting. Um, you know, it was literally the results. And, and they gave it that context. And then we also you know, had to think about, well, how could we guide the, the use of these technologies so that they don't get misused? And, and I think trying to come up with solutions were, gave it that extra edge, right? It could have just been, this is what we did, and this is, you know, the cookbook of how to do it. But actually, it gave some really concrete solutions of how we could limit access to the technology and the needs to actually train scientists so that they don't encounter these kinds of dual use scenarios. And so it was more of an educational article in that respect. Um, and it wasn't sensationalist, I think. I mean, we were, we were pretty much to the point of, well, this is the technologies, this is what they can be used to do. And so now we need to respond to that. So obviously there was a great deal of thought about should we publish it or not? You know, once we got to that point, I think we were all agreed that actually this would be useful for the field. And then once we submitted it, 
then we get the feedback from the journals. You know, all bets are off. Will they like it or not? Will they reject it? And so the first journal we submitted to, they said it wasn't of broad enough interest, and that was to science. So that was a little bit disappointing because we thought they would have a broad reach, right? And then we submitted it to um, Nature Machine Intelligence, and they seemed to respond after a couple of weeks that they thought it was, um, you know, interesting. And, and so we thought, you know, we were getting excited, like, all right, they're going to publish it. And then they said, all right, we're going to send it out for review. And so our heart sank because we knew that it would take a long time. And, you know, once reviewers get it, we're thinking, oh, no, they're going to be conservative and they're not going to want this to see the light of day. So, yeah, it, it, that was the interesting bit. Once you throw it over the wall um, into the hands of reviewers, you just never know what's going to happen. And then, obviously, they censor it, and then they come up with things you have to cite and you have to change it. So we went through a couple of really um, edits to the, the commentary, and um, so that took it in some slightly different directions. You know, it, it sort of shut off a little bit more detail. I mean, we self-censored quite a bit, but they censored it even more um, and toned it down, I think, and, you know, I don't think we were being too sensationalistic, but they took a lot of what we had originally put in there and, and, and sort of trimmed it back. Um, so, yeah, what came out of it, I mean, we thought it was kind of interesting, but we didn't really appreciate the impact it was going to have. I mean, seriously, had no appreciation for that. And I thought the fact that it went into Nature Machine Intelligence would probably be kind of a backwater. I mean, it's a relatively new journal um, from a very credible journal, Nature. Um, so we, we just thought, you know, okay, there'll be a few people that'll be interested and that'll be it. And then, you know, kind of, it went a little bit crazy. Um, we got to the point where, you know, is it going to get accepted? And then ultimately it was accepted and then it was embargoed and then it came out by surprise. You know, they, they sort of published it by mistake and, and, and so it was just like one drama after another drama. So, you know, Developing the technology, showing it was dramatic in its own right, and the feedback was great. Writing it was another thing. And then the drama of the publication. And then the response to it. I mean, it, it published while I was on vacation, and it, I didn't actually know it had published for over a week. It had been, been out. And then we saw that a blogger had blogged on it, and then it really was picked up by the newswires. We didn't even have time to put out a press release, and so we were kind of caught on the words, really. So I think that story of the publication is somewhat meta in the fact that accidentally, once you let something out of the box, it is very difficult to put it back in uh, with the rapid fire which, which this spread throughout the media. And I think the point you made at the beginning is a very great, great one in that dual use is not on the radar of most scientists working across most industries. It's not part of our training. It's not part of our education. It's not part of our professional discourse at meetings or in, within departments. When we're now moving into an era where very powerful technologies with dual-use applications are becoming increasingly democratized. I think artificial intelligence is one of those that is now going to be an enabling technology across so many fields, whether we think about robotics or chemistry or synthetic biology. AI is basically the turbocharge for so many of those, um, for the development of so many new fields. And so 
What is your thought in the reception that you have gotten and this widespread interest? And what has that told, told you about the scientific community's openness to starting discussions around dual use and also the need to start cultivating those discussions within the professions? Um, I guess what it told me is um, that they hadn't thought about this before. And, and, and so, you know, now I can understand and I, I, I can see why it had such a response. Like this hadn't been part of the discussion. You know, the use of AI in the context of chemical weapons, it, it just wasn't there. It hadn't happened before. And no one had done this experiment as far as we can tell. And even though it seems obvious, it wasn't obvious to us to do it. Um, I mean, it seemed like it was something that was doable, credible. I think the responses I, I've had and what I've learned since, you know, all the traditional examples of dual use have been biological. You know, whether that's, um, you know, remaking the polio vaccine or the 1918 flu virus, um, the polio virus, sorry, um, monkeypox, you know, all these different horsepox things, examples that are really solid, they come out of a lab. You know, a scientist has had, actually had to have the experience and the expertise to recreate something. That those viruses have been something that maybe didn't exist and now they've come back. And whereas our example is all in the computer, you know, it, it's a very different example of dual use. Everything else was physical. This is virtual. It's in silico. It's a, you know, it's a simulation of what could happen, but it's the first step really to design the molecules, right? And so if we can do this computational and design millions or hundreds of thousands of molecules, narrow down onto which molecules would actually be synthetically tractable. Um, it's given a chemist uh, or a bad actor an idea of what they could make. And so it's that first starting point. So I, I can see the, the impact of what we've done. And I think now with hindsight, we can sort of put it in context with the other examples of dual use that have existed before. And those have obviously caught the headlines, right? And so now it just seems like, all right, it's natural. This is the progression. And so as we're having this conversation, there are hundreds, if not thousands of companies globally that are in the computational drug discovery and design space, many of which have intense financial pressures on them to move fast and break things, um, and also to diversify and to sort of think outside of the box. How has this process and this realization, coupled with the fact that risks are not on most scientists' radar, changed your thinking, if at all, about the open source nature of this field? Yeah, I think uh, that was one of the drivers really initially for, for writing the piece, uh, because I was thinking, well, if we're a small company and we're using AI in this, this way. Just imagine what could happen if you're in a bigger company that has access to the same tools or even more tools, right? Uh, and more resources. How do you follow or track the employees and make sure that they're not misusing the technology? And so for me, that was really concerning. Actually, that was really, I think, one of the drivers for actually writing it initially was to put that out there, to tell these other companies, you know, that, hey, you need to be aware of this because it just takes one rogue bad actor um, to do something with the technology and share that information electronically somewhere else. You know, they don't even have to keep the information in this country or wherever they do the ex virtual experiment. 
um, share that information with someone that has the means to synthesize the molecules, um, you know, and then it's out of your hands, right? I mean, how do you control that? And so we felt that this was the first step. I mean, obviously we didn't take the next step, which was to show that, that those molecules are actually synthesizable and then actually, you know, do the real chemistry. Um, but that was also something we felt, you know, didn't have to happen at the same place where the, the actual design would happen because there's so many com companies around the world that will do the chemistry kind of on demand. And also we're getting to the point where there's autonomous chemistry happening. You know, the technologies are being built in enough labs now where robots can essentially make molecules. And so you could imagine the coupling of the AI to design and then the technologies to synthesize and test the molecules as being completely autonomous. So we're almost getting to the point where human is out of the loop. So how do you put safeguards in place for those technologies so that a rogue AI doesn't generate these molecules, right? And they come out of the production line. So all of these um, almost science fiction kind of scenarios were what came to mind as we were writing this. But actually this is science fact, this is reality. You know, we've, we've been able to design molecules, some of which already exist. Obviously VX is a known molecule, but we also came up with precursor molecules in that process. Um, going back to the data more recently, after having so many questions from people and the press, that forced us to look more closely at some of the molecules that the AI came up with. And that's when we realized, wow, it's not just coming up with the final product, it's actually coming up with the molecules along the way. So if it's doing that, you could actually work around um, and come up with completely new ways of synthesizing the final product that would be outside of the chemical watch list. And I think you know that's something that we mentioned as well, or at least we sort of intimated towards. Like it could also give bad actors ideas of how to make the end result without being observed kind of under the radar cloaked in a way and and so the dangers of these technologies are that they're obviously open source freely available the tools to actually do the design are open source in many many places as well so it just takes someone that glues these together and has the the mindset to do it you can't how do you control that you know because it could happen anywhere in the world there's so much there that I, I want to unpack. And I think one place to start that you mentioned was this idea of human in the loop and oversight and the need for human in the, over, in the loop and oversight to be at each step of the process and integrated throughout an increasingly autonomous supply chain, right? We talked a little bit about drug, the actual design of the molecules in silico, but also increasing use of autonomy in chemical synthesis. We've seen this also on the synthetic biology side of programmable DNA and using living organisms as living boundaries to make things like drugs and other, other chemicals. And so thinking about risk mitigation in the context of an ever more autonomous world as something that needs to be employed at a systems level and across the supply chain and so it's not a matter of just educating a single stakeholder group, say scientists doing drug design or computational toxicology, but it's about educating the whole drug development ecosystem. Absolutely. I, I mean, it, it, well, yeah, it touches on so many different areas. Um, 
you know, from the management all the way down, right? Because ultimately it comes down to the person that is using the software. And in this case, Fabio is, you know, the person typing and, and he's the hands-on person, right? I'm, I'm just one level removed in a way. But in bigger companies, I mean, you're going to have layers of management there. So how do you control what the person that's using these technologies actually does, right? And, and sharing that information, how do you prevent them from sharing the re results that come out of it? And uh, in academia, it's going to be even more diffuse, right? I mean, in industry, you would think that you would have an organized training um, in terms of what to do and what not to do. In academia, it may be even more freeform. So I guess some of the things that we thought about was more ethical training, um, as well as obviously direct uh, training in terms of like the do's and don'ts with the technologies, right? And how do you hardwire the directionality of the models? Because all we did was we flipped the directionality of one model, you know, our LD50 model. Uh, and obviously, normally we would be designing molecules that would be less toxic, predicted to be less toxic. And we just flipped it in the other direction to make more toxic molecules. So from the training side, you know, whether you hardwire that into the software or you just, you know, tell the scientists, you know, the do's and don'ts basically. And I think um, all the way up to the funders of these companies, there's, there needs to be some res responsibility, right? Because there's obviously billions of dollars that are going into some of these new AI companies for drug discovery without any thought of this potential for misuse. And clearly now we've only shown it in one very narrow area, but there could be other areas that these tools could be used, right? So, you know, making more addictive drugs of abuse, we, we proposed in a recent article is one thing, or even more toxic uh, peptides or proteins. These are all potentially within the realm of possibility for the technology. And so there needs to be some discussion about this at all levels. Um, we definitely propose that major... Um, institutes and organizations, you know, and academies should be thinking about this. Clearly, the work has reached the very highest levels of government already. Um, and there has been a lot of discussion internally about, well, they've put this out there. Well, it could have come out years ago, to be quite honest. I mean, these technologies have been around for quite a long period of time. Um, and it just took this sort of convergence of us, the request and the availability of the data sets to do it. But I mean, the amount of money that's going into this whole area now and the hype that's surrounding it, it's just asking for something to go wrong, to be quite honest. I see a lot of parallels between your journey here on the macro factors influencing uh, the drug design and discovery process and the potential for harm and weaponization to the work that we do at the Future of Life Institute on autonomous weapons. So that is an area we think about the importance of having a human in the loop on the actual decision to enact lethal harm with an individual weapon, but also broader risk mitigation sort of steps as AI starts to get integrated across weapon system and across the chain of command and, and control. And what is the requirement at each step of the way for human-machine interaction and having someone who is educated and trained and up to date on ethics and requirements and safety um, to be able to intervene at, at, at any point in time. And also a field where there is a lot of overlap between 
technologies that are used in consumer products, right? We think about facial recognition software. Facial recognition software, great to be on your phone, an industry where there is a tremendous amount of investment to develop better and faster systems. But if you integrate that with a weapon system, that gets pretty dire pretty, pretty quickly. Another thread I want to pull on here is talking about you didn't just get VX when you put the inputs into this model. And if we could talk a little bit about the limitations of machine, current machine learning models and methods about explainability and understanding how these systems make the sort of outputs that they do, because my understanding from your article was many of these compounds were surprising and were not just analog, the traditional analogs that you may have expected based on the input. Yeah, I mean, obviously we had to fuzzify uh, for the purposes of the journal and the reviewers quite a lot of what we actually did. Um, but at a, a pretty high level, I mean, we, we really just had two models that were driving the design. We had the, obviously the activity for the, for the target uh, for causing, you know, the effect of the nerve agent. And then we had the LD50 model, you know, obviously in, in rats, and it was a massive model. Um, so it's covering quite a large chemical space. And so those were really the models that were used to design the, the, the molecules. But we trained the algorithm initially with um, about 2 million drugs that are out there uh, in the Kemble database, which is obviously free, freely available. And we, we didn't mention it in, in the article, but I mean, it's out there. Um, so the software knew how to piece molecules together, but mostly in the drug context. And obviously VX is not a drug. But it is small, um, and it obviously obeys the same chemical rules that putting a drug together would have to do. And so we gave it kind of, you know, the goal of building VX. We, get, we told it, you know, the kind of area it had to go and the direction and the activities it needed to fulfill. Um, but yeah, along the way, obviously, it generated 40,000 or so molecules. And obviously going back to it more recently, we found these precursor molecules, which are actually restricted and they're on watch lists. Um, so Cedric confirmed for five of the molecules that we pulled out that these are actually monitored molecules. But yeah, some of the molecules that we predicted were even more toxic, predicted to be even more toxic than VX. And they had some of the elements of VX and they had other novel chemistry. And what we've done recently is is go back and look well did we come up with any other chemical weapons that, that are known and the answer for the ones that we looked at about a, a dozen or so was no we definitely came up with vx and we definitely came up with molecules around very close to the molecules that were known but we didn't actually come up with the exact molecule and so we're definitely exploring the space quite broadly and so the potential i think is very high that we've actually come up with new chemical weapons. And the challenge, obviously, as other people are pointing out, is that just having toxic molecules maybe isn't enough, right? Um, but we really don't wanna do the experiment of making these molecules and testing them either. So we're kind of caught in a quandary here of, uh, yes, we've definitely explored the space of known chemical weapons. We've come up with VX as an example of a known molecule. We've come up with many precursors of VX and other chemical weapons. And there are tens of thousands of other molecules, TBD, right? We just don't know whether they're actually going to be toxic against the, the target, you know, the same target as VX or potentially other targets. Uh, so there is a big question mark there, you know. Um, 
Could we have done this driving towards other chemical weapons like Novichok? Absolutely. Would we have discovered Novichok? Probably. Um, I think that was the shock, right? We, we did this experiment in the hope that we could recapitulate a known chemical weapon, and the software did it. And could it do this over and over again? And if we left it long enough, you know, how many other molecules could it come up with as well that were potentially toxic? But the things that we didn't do, you know, we, we could have added in a lot more complexity, um, you know, to try to narrow down the chemistry space so that it had, you know, the kinds of properties that would be desirable for a chemical weapon. And for me, I think that's even going further. And, you know, ethically, that does feel bad. I mean, you know, obviously when we did this, we realized, oh boy, you know, let's close the door pretty quickly. You know, it had that kind of dirty feeling to it. But if, if we went further, I, 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 you know, I don't know whether we'd be able to live with ourselves, right? Because if that information got out, you know, that we, I mean, it's already, we've done so much harm. And also I think it's balanced with the good that we've done. We've obviously had to reflect on it. A lot of these kinds of discussions we've had with the media and yourself, it's, you sort of play them back over your mind, you know, was this the right thing to do at the right time? Yes, it was. Um, hopefully, we've alerted enough people now to the potential. Yeah. And it's. I think it's worth reiterating that this initial project started out of a conference that seeks to help with the Chemical and Biological Weapons Convention. And how do we make sure that those treaties are remain in the 21st century with the development of technology to continue to be robust and keep the world safe? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's absolutely changes that are going to have to happen now, right? Because of this. I mean, for us, it's led to a lot of opportunities to talk to people on the ethics side. And I think, you know, next, next month when I go to um, the Netherlands, you know, to talk to OPCW, um, it will be kind of interesting to see what, what they think of it um, and, you know, how this is going to reflect on changes from the policy level. Um, I mean, some of these things are way outside of my pay grades, and I'm just starting to learn about the implications of this. So it is a bit frightening, you know, but we've set the wheels in motion, I think, now. We've given visibility to this, uh, even some credibility, I think, to the whole concept of, of AI and malicious AI in the context of chemical weapons. Um, so what is the next stage? You know, someone's going to have to come on with some guidelines or recommendations. Uh, I, I think that will be kind of interesting to watch. Whether we'll actually be involved in that process, I, I doubt it. I think the policymakers will come in and you know that let them take over. I, I think what we can do is try to come up with some ideas of potential guidelines um, from our side, you know. I, and I think now we've come up with about ten of them in, in the several publications that we're trying to put out now. Um, that was definitely something that was not on our radar screen at, at the outset. I didn't actually think we would revisit the work altogether but there's just been so much interest in it that i think it would be remiss of us if we didn't go back and add a little bit more i don't know how far we're going to go you know whether this is something that we want to continue with uh, or whether we just leave it up to others because the discussion now is going to have a mind of its own you know that continuation of this project maybe it's for other scientists uh, to do that not us <laughs>